we can never, ever, ever approach God in such a way that we bring our resume or our cover letter or our references or all the good deeds that we have done over the course of our life. We never come to God with these expectations saying, God, you owe me because of all the great things that I have done. And therefore, you need to give me that pat on the back. You need to give me the golden ticket because I've done my stuff. We can never come to God that way. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. As we move through the season of Advent, we remember the Old Testament promises of Messiah, which were realized in the coming of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to his future return in glory. You can find more information about this teaching series and our church at gatewaycrc.org. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, why don't you open them to the book of Isaiah chapter 7. Perhaps the easiest way to find that, uh, open right down the middle. You're probably going to find Psalms or Proverbs. And then you got to start turning to the right, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then a big book called Isaiah. Find Isaiah chapter 7. Seven. If you get to Jeremiah, you've gone a little bit too far. Once you find Isaiah chapter 7, I want to also encourage you to put a tab there and find the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. While you're looking for those, we are in week two of Advent. Advent is a word that we use in church, which comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which simply means coming or arrival. We're anticipating something. We're anticipating the arrival of something. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we anticipating? So as Christians, we're doing two things. The first thing we're doing is we are looking back at the coming of the Messiah, which is now fulfilled. And it's actually quite helpful for the fact that we just finished the book of Daniel in which we saw these prophetic visions given to us from God to his servant Daniel, and we saw that there would be four kingdoms that would rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall, and then there would be a window of time in which the Messiah would come. And I've shared with you, for those of us who are wrestling with doubts, who are wondering whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. The book of Daniel is an incredible apologetic because how could Daniel have known with the remarkable specificity that he gives that uh, events would turn out exactly the way that they did? We see first that we had the city of Babylon and then we had the Medes and the Persians and then we had the Greeks and then we had the Romans and at the peak of Roman power, Jesus came just as he said he would, exactly as scripture says. And one of the the best examples that I gave to you already is when John the Baptist tells all of his disciples to go to Jesus And he says, are are you the Messiah, the one that Daniel was talking about, the one Isaiah was talking about, or should we anticipate someone else? And then what does Jesus say? He recites the book of Isaiah, and he says that the blind will receive sight, the mute will talk, the lame will walk, the leprous will be cleansed, and the dead will raise. And it's a direct reference to the book of Isaiah. Why is John the Baptist doubting? Why is he asking those questions? Because there was this anticipation, this expectation that the Messiah would overthrow the principalities and the powers. Meanwhile, Rome is still being Rome. 
And Jesus has not conquered Rome, and we realize something about our, our king, our cosmic king. His kingdom is not established in the same way that we build up earthly kingdoms. And so here's what we realize. Earthly kingdoms rise and fall, but the kingdom of God stands forever. And we see all of that now in past tense. All of those things, the fulfilled promises of God, are now in the rearview mirror. And we get to look into that. We get to see it as an apologetic that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. So it bolsters our faith. But here's the second thing that we do in this season. We look forward, recognizing that the return of the Messiah is promised. And a promise of God is as good as done. A promise of God is as good as done. So this is what theologians call the already but the not yet, the already, but the not yet. We're looking through the rearview mirror and we see that all the promises of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, but we're also longing for the day in which Jesus will return again in glory and make all things new, and we're right in the, that center space. That's where we find ourselves, looking back and looking forward, all at exactly the same time. So for the remainder of this Advent season, we're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah, which I think is a, a very fitting book to look at given we just finished the book of Daniel. Because Isaiah is going to do some of the same things. It's like looking at a diamond and turning it and seeing all the different colors and facets and features of the promises that God makes. And in that way, if we have the eyes to see, it will bolster our faith, it will revive within us a great enthusiasm to live out the gospel even today, even in the midst of our doubts, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, even in the midst of the challenges that we face in our life. And so that's what I want us to do. I want us to, to center ourselves in the midst of this season to focus on what matters most. So if you got your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 7, starting at verse 10, the last verse, verse 14, I'm sure is familiar to most of you, but the first three, it might be uncommon, we'll unpack it in just a little bit. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, that's the king of Judah, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah the prophet said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here's the sign, hear it. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And that word Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. So again, most of you have heard verse 14 a number of times, especially if you've grown up in church. You have heard chapter 7, verse 14, because it's again referenced in Matthew chapter 1, which we're going to look at in just a little bit. But some of you might be asking, who's Ahaz? What's the context? What's going on? Why is Isaiah there? And why is he angry at Ahaz when he says, I'm not going to put God to the test? 
What's going on in this story? So let me very quickly give you the context because knowing this story, what's happening within it, I think will help us see that we're banging our head on all the same stuff. The same stuff that Ahaz was struggling with. So the year is 735 BC. If you're taking notes, take note of that. If you recall, when we went all the way back to the beginning of Daniel, when was the exile of Judah into Babylon? What was the year? Do any of you remember? 605 BC. So that means we're going back in time 130 years. That's where we find ourselves. The nation of Israel has already splintered. We have Israel, we have Judah. Israel has fallen away, they're no longer following God. There's a remnant that remains, and that is the nation of Judah, and Ahaz is the king of Judah. At this particular point in time, there is immense pressure, political pressure, for him to join one of two different armies. The first is to join the powerful nation of Assyria, and that should be familiar to you because you might recall that Assyria Egypt, Israel, and Judah was wiped out by Babylon in 605 BC. So Assyria is in power at this time, and they are considering becoming a vassal state of Assyria. But they also have immense political pressure to join two smaller nations, Syria, not Assyria, Syria, and Israel. And so Syria and Israel, they are trying to put on a lot of political pressure for them to join forces with them, because they're afraid that Judah might go over and join Assyria. So Isaiah, he comes to King Ahaz and he says, here's the deal. Do not become a vassal state of Assyria. And do not join forces with Syria and Israel. Instead, trust in the Lord. The Lord will provide. Do not join forces with these other nations. Stay true to the Lord. But that's easier said than done because Assyria has the power to wipe out Judah at any moment and at any time. And as I've shared with you already, Syria and Israel is creating a lot of political tension by bringing in their armies to Judah to say, do the right thing, join us or else. So he's, um, he's literally encamped with other armies all around him and he is feeling the pressure and the question that he has to ask is, will I put my trust in God or will I yield to the kingdoms and the powers all around me? He's pressed on all sides. So, so here's the question, both for Ahaz, but I think also for us too, that I put in your note sheet. Will you trust in God's promises or only what your eyes can see? Will you trust in God's promises or only what your eyes can see. So again, Isaiah says, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. And it's in that context that we read the prophetic vision of verse 14. That's, that's what's happening in the midst of the story when he says, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's what's happening at this time. But what help is a prophetic vision, a sign of the Messiah who's going to come, if that's not going to happen for another 735 years? When you're encamped on all sides, what help is that? See, that's the question. 
That's the question. How many of us know when Jesus will return? No one knows. We don't know when he'll return again in glory. But the question is, will we remain faithful to the promises of God even beyond what our eyes can see? Even if we don't know when he will return again in glory. We don't know the answers to that question, but that's what he's calling us to do. Will we choose to have the courage and to take by faith what God has already said to us? If so, the promise of God is this. I will protect you. I will protect you. I will protect you. But we struggle with that because it's much easier to put our trust in things that we can see. So you might be curious, what decision did Ahaz make? Did he put his trust in God beyond what his eyes could see? Or did he join forces with one of these two nations? Well, he joined forces with Assyria and became a vassal state of Assyria, the most powerful nation in the known world. What was the upshot of that? Go read Daniel. That's how the story begins. Eventually they become a vassal state and then later uh, Babylon wipes them all out. But here's what I find so interesting about this story. We think of the prophetic vision of God when, when he says that Emmanuel, God with us, is coming. And we might think in our mind that this is a conditional offer. Like Ahaz, if you have the faith and the courage to trust in me beyond what your eyes can see, then the Messiah will come. But what we see here is Ahaz, he does not listen to the prophetic vision, but God's promise continues anyway. It still happens, despite his disobedience, despite his unfaithfulness, God continues in the story. The promise was still kept. So Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Circle, highlight, underline. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The, and that's Isaiah, what we just read. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, these two stories are intricately linked, and they reveal something to us about the nature of our sin and the desperate need that we have for our Savior. So for the rest of our time, I want to give attention to verse 23. This reference to God with us. Let me tell you a story about John Wesley, uh, the great founder of the Methodist Church. 
when he was in his late 20s, just a couple years younger than I am, uh, he went to Oxford University. And while he was there, um, he eventually was going to prove to be one of the greatest theological minds of his time, but in his mid to late 20s, he was rather snobbish and sarcastic, and so he was about to board a train. And there, there was a porter, a porter is someone who takes all the luggage and puts it on the train. And he started having a conversation with this porter and very quickly realized that he had literally one coat and no bed to sleep in. What he was wearing is what he owned, but he loved Jesus. And so Wesley, becoming a little bit sarcastic, he said something like this. He said, so um, aside from your one coat and your no bed, is there anything else you're grateful for to God? And later he recounts the story, and this is what he writes down to what the porter said. The porter replies, I thank him that he has given me a life to live, a heart to love him, and a constant desire to serve him. Above all, I thank God that he is with us. Emmanuel. And that response stayed with John Wesley until the very last of his days. Until one day in which he was 88 years old and he was on his deathbed, he thought about the porter again. And on his deathbed, he wrote, or he said this, I will praise God as long as I have breath. The best thing of all is that God is with us. Emmanuel. And I want to propose to you that there is no greater comfort There is no greater cause for rejoicing than this truth. That the creator of the universe does not sit idly by, but he came from heaven to earth. He put on flesh, and I love the way that the message translation says this. He entered the neighborhood. He joined us. God is with us. And I want us to consider all the implications of this word Emmanuel and what it means for us today. So that's going to be a bit of an outline moving forward. If you like to take notes, you already know the three points. I think they're going to become quite clear here. The first word is God. The second word is with. The third word is us. Let's look at the first one. God with us. The simple yet profound meaning of Christmas is that Christ, the creator of the universe, the one who knit us together in our mother's womb, descended to earth, he put on flesh, and he dwelt with us. Everything else is secondary to that. This is the main reality. And and Matthew, he can't help but at every single moment draw out that attention to us that the creator of the universe put on flesh. That God put on flesh and he joined us, right? You consider the context. Matthew is writing to God-fearing Jews, right? He wants uh, the, the tribe of Israel, the people of God, the Jews, to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that they have been reading in what we call now the Old Testament. That Jesus is the fulfillment of those things, And so he's constantly appealing to them, saying, you know, the creator of the universe, 
the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, the one who made covenant promises to Abraham, the one who through 10 plagues brought Egypt down to its knees, the one who parted the Red Sea, the one who gave you manna in the wilderness to eat, the one who never leaves you or forsakes you, that God is fulfilled in Jesus. That is Jesus. And he wants his Jewish brothers and sisters to realize this. So he keeps coming back to this claim. It's, it's the anthem of the book of Moses. So let me give you an example of this. Throughout the book of Matthew, we see constant accounts of Jesus forgiving sins. He'll say things like, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Maybe the quintessential example of this is when the paralyzed man is brought down by his faithful friends right in front of when Jesus is teaching a bunch of people in Peter's house. And the expectation is that Jesus will perform a miracle. He'll lay his hands on this paralyzed man. He'll be able to walk. He'll pick up his mat. He'll leave. But before all of that, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees who are there, they look at Jesus, and they're filled with anger, and they say what? Who can forgive sins but God alone? What a question. I mean to propose to you that they got the question exactly right. We need to ask exactly the same question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So let me give you an example of this. Let's say there's two guys. uh, They're getting into a fight. We'll call them uh, Bob and Joe. And let's suppose that Bob punches Joe in the face, and Joe now has a bloody face. Imagine if I come up to Bob immediately after this, and I say, Bob, I forgive you. (laughs) Like Bob's like, you can't forgive me. I punched Joe. And Joe is angry, too. He's like, you can't forgive him. Only I can forgive him. He's the one who did something wrong to me. How could I enter into that space and say, I forgive you? He has done nothing wrong to me. And yet, Jesus keeps doing that. That same kind of moral equivalent, something that doesn't look like it came upon him, it came upon others, and Jesus still says those words. What's the point? All sin is an offense against Jesus if, as the Pharisees say, he is God. If he is God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That is the question. Jesus is the creator of the universe. Jesus is making the claim that he is God. And that's why, as I've said to you before, we can never have this sort of posture toward Jesus that says, huh, Jesus is like a really interesting person. Like he's a really good moral person. And and I think I need him in my life. I I think I can use him kind of like a supplemental pill to enjoy my life a little bit better. I think he has some good advice for me. We can never have that perspective toward Jesus. C.S. Lewis, the way that he explained it, he said, you can only have one of three perspectives when it comes to Jesus. He is either a liar and he knows it, or he's a lunatic like a crazy person, or he is who he says he is, and we should all bow down and worship him and give our complete allegiance to him. But we should never have this kind of middle ground, nonsense view that he's a good moral teacher. We can take a couple things from him, but then live our life the way that we want to. He did not give us that option. 
And so this is kind of the, the offensive element that we find in Emmanuel, that Jesus is God. The radical message of Christianity is this. You don't just need good teaching. You don't just need to be a, a good moral person. What you need is for God to take on flesh, to come and join us here on earth, and to endure the cross, scorning its shame so that we can be set free. You need the creator of the universe to take away the sins of the world. And the question for us is, do we believe that? Do we believe that with our heart of hearts? If Christmas is right, then everything else about Christianity makes sense, right? The, the miracles, the exclusive claims, and the outrageous demands for us to give our entire lives in obedience and allegiance to God. But it all starts with Christmas. See, a lot of people get annoyed with the exclusivity of Christianity, Especially, I think, in, in today's 21st century context, question might be like, you know, why can't we all just get along? Why can't you have your religious view and I'll have mine, right? Christianity and Buddhism and Islam and um, I'm agnostic or I'm atheist. Why can't we all just get along and believe what we want to believe? Recognize that there's a lot of different ways to have uh, your sort of faith and everything's going to be okay. Can't we just coexist? And yet Christianity is so exclusive. Why are you so exclusive? And yet, I mean to propose to you that Christmas is the answer to that question. Christianity isn't exclusive in the same way that, let me just give you this example. Let's suppose four doctors tell you, even though you're feeling really sick and you think you have a terminal illness, four doctors tell you, no, all you need is to drink lots of fluids, get lots of sleep, maybe take some ibuprofen, but everything's going to be okay. And then a fifth doctor comes up to you and he says, nope, they're all wrong. You're terminal and you need this medicine in order to survive. You wouldn't say that's exclusive. You wouldn't say, wow, you think you know so much more than all the other doctors? You think you're better than them? You think their way is bad and your way is good? No, here's what you're going to say. You're going to say either you're right or you're wrong. And my life depends upon figuring out which of those two it is. You're right or you're wrong. And I got to figure that out. And so that's what we have to recognize as Christians. Is Jesus who he says he is or isn't he? Because we can't have this middle ground. We have to ask ourselves that question. So Christianity says your situation is even more dire than King Ahaz with enemies on all sides. You cannot save yourself the antidote for your life is found in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we have to gauge that claim. Is it true? Or is it false? That's God. Number two, God with us. Now here's the good news. This is the beautiful part which cannot be understated. And to get an appreciation for what scripture is telling us, I want us to travel back into the Old Testament and to see every single time that God shows up in the Old Testament, how does he show up? Right, let me give you a couple examples. When God shows up to Abraham, he shows up as a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, a huge blazing furnace. 
And he is so majestic and so beautiful and so terrifying that Abraham falls over in a deep, dreadful darkness and he cannot move. He is overcome with fear. Or when he shows up in front of Moses in the form of fire or a pillar of fire or a cloud by day and fire by night. Or when he shows up to Job, he shows up as a whirlwind, a tempest, right? A tornado. Maybe my, my favorite example of this is when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and he says, God, I want to behold your glory. And God says, nope, can't do that. Otherwise, you would die. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to hide you behind a cleft of a rock, just a tiny little cleft. And I'm going to walk by and all you're going to see is my hind parts. Who knows what that is, right? But my behind, my back, my leg, like the, the least glorious and beautiful part of me is what I will let you behold. And then it says in scripture that Moses radiates with the glory of God. He comes down the mountain and instantly the people of Israel start screaming in fear and dread and they say, Moses, we can't look at you. What you need is like the, the cones that we put on dogs after they get work done, right? And like a veil over top of that. We don't want to see your face. We don't want to see it because it's freaking us out. And so you've heard of secondhand smoke, right? If you smoke in front of someone, they, they could inhale it and that's not good for them. We now know that there's third-hand smoke. You could smoke in front of someone, it gets on their clothes, they go somewhere else, and they're associating with a third person, and they smell the smoke, and that's not good for them. Well, apparently, there's such thing as third-hand experiences of the presence of God that brings people to their knees. All that is to say, in the Old Testament, when God appeared to his people, they freaked out. And then we look to the New Testament, and Jesus is a baby, a helpless baby. Could you imagine if Moses was sitting here in the front row and he heard this for the very first time? Emmanuel, God with us? Like, what, was, what would his attitude be? He'd say, do you not realize what is happening? Where's your joy? Where's your enthusiasm? Where's your excitement? This is the very thing that I was denied that you now get to receive. You get to enter into the presence of Jesus in ways that I never could. That no one in the Old Testament ever could. That Jesus took on flesh and he was with us. And I mean to propose to you, we have that today. We can enter into the presence of Jesus right now, today. You can have that as a believer and it should fill us with joy. So, number one, we can trust God with our lives because he is God. But number two, we can love God with our whole hearts because he is with us. And because he has proved to us that he is willing to come from heaven to earth to the cross. And to die a sinner's death even though he was perfect in every way so that we could be set free. He clawed his way from heaven to earth to get to you. God is with us. Third and finally, God is with us. Us. Now, the word us, I want you to recognize, is a limited term. It doesn't say God with all. It says God with us. 
And so just like the first word, God, here comes the exclusivity. But I want you to see it's not exclusive in the way you might think. Because the us does not refer to some super moral, super religious group of people. Right? That the most religious among us get to enter into the presence of God. It's not that. The us referenced in the Old Testament and in the New Testament always, always, always refers to the lowly, the humble, the meek, the mild, and those who long for the mercy of God. That's the us of the story. And again, I, I hope you brought your mirror Bible this morning. The question that we have to ask ourselves is how do we approach God? See, we can never, ever, ever approach God in such a way that we bring our resume or our cover letter or our references or all the good deeds that we have done over the course of our life. We never come to God with these expectations saying, God, you owe me because of all the great things that I have done. And therefore, you need to give me that pat on the back. You need to give me the golden ticket because I've done my stuff. We can never come to God that way. The only way that we can come before God is lowly. Oh, the wretch that I am, says Martin Luther. I'm like a worm before God. And it was so interesting. Martin Luther, before he became a Christian, before he knew the good news of the gospel, he would go up what was called the Scala Sancta, the Holy Stairs. And he would climb up these stairs like a worm with tears in his eyes. And at the top of these stairs, there was a big picture of Jesus and it was entitled God the Judge. And he, with tears in his eyes, would say, how can I ever come to realize or come to repay my evil for good? Because he realized something. He could never do that. He could never measure up. But then he realized the gospel for what it is. And he saw for the very first time that Jesus has paid the way. So that he could be set free. So that you and I could be set free. And so I hope and pray that for those of us who are hearing this story for the first time. Or if you've heard this story a hundred times and a hundred times more, that it would still amaze us and perplex us and overwhelm us to see that God did come from heaven to earth. He did put on flesh. He did enter the neighborhood. And he did all of it, all of it for you and for me. I was rereading um, this week the book Basic Christianity from John Stott. And uh, he said this. He says, anybody who ever met Jesus Christ only ever had three responses to him. They either were terrified and wanted to run away, or they hated him and wanted to kill him and stone him to death, or they worshiped him and got down on their knees and they gave him everything. And what I mean to say to you today is that these are the only rational responses to Jesus. And so we once again have to enter into that apologetic, into that question, is 
Jesus who he says he is. And so I want to give you two things to take home today as you consider this further. Here's the first one. You need to take off the limitations that you have put on Jesus. So many of us, so many of us, the way that we treat Jesus is as though he is a really good cosmic consultant, a really good coach with some really cool ideas to help us have a a bit of a better life. That, you know, if I just add this element to my life and that one, I don't like that very much. That's just outdated and part of some old archaic religion. But I'm going to add all these certain elements to my life, custom made for me, and that's going to be perfect. That works if he's a consultant. It does not work if he is the Lord of the universe. And so we have to reconsider the ways in which we approach God. Is he who he says he is? If so, the only appropriate response is to bow down on our knees and to give him our entire allegiance, even if it hurts, that we would say, Lord, here's everything. Take all of me, all that I have and all that I am. It's yours. It's yours. And here's the second thing I want you to consider. What are you, if you believe the first If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, God with us, Emmanuel, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our Lord, if you believe that, then here's the next question. What are you doing to draw near to Jesus? What are you doing to draw near to him? Recognizing that Jesus clawed his way from heaven to earth to get to you What are you doing to get to him? What habits or vices do you need to pull off? What new habits do you have to put on? What new disciplines or practices do you have to carry forward in order to ensure that he is the priority of your life? I promise you, I I think of the words of Jesus where he says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. I think sometimes we get that backwards. We say, where your heart is, you'll naturally go. But he's saying, no, where you place your treasure is where your heart will follow. What are you investing in? How are you spending your time? How are you devoting yourself to Jesus? How is that carried out in your prayer life, in your devotional life, in the way that you work, in the way you use your mouth, in the way that you speak about others when they're not in the room? How do you use all of your attributes, your very life? Does that emulate the faith that you have in King Jesus or does it? You've been listening to our latest message as we've been making our way through the season of Advent, focused on the coming of Jesus Christ. As always, you can find resources and information about this teaching series and more information about our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the Weekly Sermon at Gateway.